My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 8th, 2011. Mm-hmm. Okay, running through my notes, I think I've got a program. <laughs> you know, it's weird. You, you wake up some days and you go, Will I have enough? Can I, can I make it work? Oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and the head T-shirt maker here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirating Christian Radio. <laughs> oh, man. Somebody asked me if they, I'd be willing to post photographs of me doing the silk screening. The answer is yes. I will post those uh, probably tomorrow, but uh, the answer is yes. We are in, in the middle of a deep production here. I actually ran out of some supplies, and we had to order uh, the, uh, a, a, a bulk amount of uh, the, um, the inks that we need in order to make the T-shirts, and it arrived today. I'm very happy about that. So, yes, anyway, <clears throat> anyway, so... I'm off topic already. (laughs) This is the program, by the way, that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of weird, crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the uh, the work of a Berean and compare those things that are being said in the name of God to the Word of God so that you're not deceived, so that you're not taken in by people who, um, well, they're wolves. posing as uh, God's sheep. They're wolves posing as shepherds of God. And uh, did I mention the fact that they're wolves? These are people who are basically making merchandise of Christians, who are not teaching the truth, who are teaching things that they ought not to teach. And the motivation for doing it, in in some cases, it's what we call shameful gain, uh, money, uh, finances. They're making merchandise of you, Christian, 
And as a result of it, uh, people are being led astray, being taught things that are not correct about God. And by the way, Jesus Christ, do you ever have any examples? Uh, can you think of a single example where Jesus Christ um, caused you to doubt God's Word, caused you to doubt the authority of Scripture, caused you to doubt what uh, is written there for us in the pages of Scripture? I can't think of a single case where Jesus did that. In fact, he always and again points to the uh, biblical uh, historical narratives as if the stories that are recorded there are not stories but are actual historical facts, as if they are recorded, uh, they record true, real history as it pertains to the people of Israel and specific uh, Israelites whom God used uh, in the bringing about and the furthering of his kingdom. Uh, the uh, people who were instrumental uh, key players in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, because all really the scriptures all they're all about Jesus. The story of the Bible is really about God's rescue of sinful humanity. It begins in paradise. It begins in the Garden of Eden. It begins with Adam and Eve, historical people whom God created as the first human beings, who we are all, all of us, every single one of us related to, and uh, and as a result of their sinful rebellion against God and the covenant that he set up there in the Garden of Eden, we are all now born dead in trespasses and sins under the influence of the devil, under the control and dominion of the devil. We have rebelled against God, and Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, he died on the cross to propitiate God's wrath against our sinfulness, against our sins, and to take the punishment upon himself that brings us peace with God. It's a fantastic story if people would actually, you know, preach it. I don't understand why it's not being preached. It's as if Christians today in the Christian church are embarrassed about all of these details. Why? Well, because there's scientists running around the landscape saying that, that, that it's not possible that, that, that there was a real Adam and Eve, and, and, and people are not interested in, in, a, in a message that involves telling them that they're sinners and that they're going to face the wrath of God, and, 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 and this idea that Jesus bled and died for sins. That's gross. People don't want to hear that. They need something more relevant. They need something more life-affirming. Uh, they need something that's going to really grab them and say, look how special you are. And that story just doesn't cut it. And so at least that's their thinking. And so they make a compromise here. They make a compromise there. They jettison that doctrine, no longer discuss that thing and and instead, you know, give people what they want. Uh, you know, got to scratch those itching ears because the time has come when people will not endure sound doctrine in the church. And so they've gathered around themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear rather than what God has commanded and ordained for us to proclaim until his return. We are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Not you and your life affirmed. Not you and your abundant life. Not you and whatever. Yeah, so. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, first of all, we've got, a, we've got an update from Patricia King. And I, from time to time, I will forward along uh, prophetic messages that Patricia King claims that she's getting. It, well, it's, it's, it's a public service that I'm doing for you, the uh, the listener of Fighting for the Faith. I mean, 
I mean, you never know. I mean, this uh, these prophetic knowledge, words of knowledge that Patricia King is receiving might actually be for you. And so we've got a um, <clears throat> we've got a word from Patricia King today, entitled "Walk into Wholeness," and it's a specific word that she claims is coming directly from God, the Holy Spirit. And who are we to quibble with her about that? <clears throat> Hang on, <clears throat> I have a hard time even doing that sarcastically. Anyway. <laughs> So uh, we're going to take a listen to uh, Patricia King's latest little, you know, info, whatever. Um, and then we're going to um, read a blog post posted yesterday by um, uh, Stephen Furtick. Uh, yeah, that's right. Stephen Furtick, the um, head pastor there um, at uh, not New Spring, but uh, Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the name of his blog post is A Master Vision Caster's Question. <laughs> and, and and this is a problem. Uh, what on earth is uh, is the biblical category of vision caster? Yeah. So we'll take a look at that. I mean, because he's he's answering a question regarding leadership and vision casting, and then we're going to switch gears to um, well, the Adam and Eve controversy that has been dusted up as a result of uh, Christianity Today's uh, head lead article. Uh, regarding uh, the historical Adam and Eve. And um, and this is one of those things where, um, y'all familiar with the story of Jack and the Beanstalk? Yeah, the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. I remember that as a child. It's one of those cautionary tales. And, uh, you know, know, Jack, he he, he lives in a family that they they don't have a a lot of money and they can't put bread on the table. And, uh, and so the decision is made to sell the family cow. They've they've got to sell the family cow, and so Jack is ordered to take the family cow to the mark to the market, and to sell it, and then that way they can take the proceeds of the family, you know, from the sale of the family cow, and use that money to put food on the table. Apparently, you know, they were in a recession, but uh, on the way to the market. Um, Jack runs across a shady character, a person who, well, wants to be his friend, and and to give him the you know the uh, the, the gift that is beyond belief. And so why? And and so he convinces Jack. Well, listen, don't, you don't want to go to the market and sell your cow for money. No, I've got something far better than money. I've got magic beans. Magic beans. Um, yeah, I, I, sadly, there are people uh, within Christianity who, um, well, not I, I, and I say that, let me explain what I mean by that. Within the visible church, people who call themselves Christians, who call themselves new kinds of Christians, evolutionary Christians, who, uh, who are all too willing to take that doctrine, that first thing that is confessed in those creeds, um, you know, we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. You know, the God that God created everything. Uh, they're willing to take that doctrine and exchange that doctrine for uh, the um, the the spiritual equivalent of magic beans. The problem is, is there's no such thing as magic beans, and um, and uh, and so what they've they're they're all too willing to take something, uh, an asset that actually has real value because it's true. And that is the doctrine of creation, that God created the world in six days, and exchange it for the magic beans known as um, as evolutionary theory. And uh, supposedly, the, the, the evidence is getting 
to it, it's getting to the point of ridiculousness to deny the doctrine of uh, of 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 evolution and um, so we're going to look at uh, that controversy a little bit and so we're going to I'm going to look at an op-ed piece uh, in uh, in the um, uh, on the Christianity uh, Today website entitled No Adam No Eve No Gospel and take a look at what goes on in that particular thing um then I've got um Gene Edward Veith's um response to that particular op-ed piece as well as the cover story for Christianity Today. And then I thought it would be fun to um, again remind you, just to remind you, uh, what are the so-called evolutionary Christian Christians really like? What does their Christianity look like? What does it sound like? And so we're going to go to the evolutionarychristianity.com website and listen to the first, you know, eight, nine minutes of um, uh, Sister Gail uh, Warkello um, talking about Sisters of Earth and the legacy of Thomas Berry and her discussion with Michael Dowd regarding evolutionary Christianity and reminds you that the the folks that are pushing for uh, the embracing of evolution and Christianity, that the Christianity that they're promoting um doesn't sound remotely like the Christianity of the Bible. And there's a reason for that because it's been radically rethunk. It's been, uh, it's been reworked if you would to, you know, cause if you're going to make room for evolution in your Christianity, uh, well then while you're under the hood, you know, retooling things and rethinking things and recasting things, I mean, start from the ground up. I mean, it just, you know, why stop with the doctrine of creation? I mean, it's it's not like the folks out there that are calling us to embrace evolution and Christianity are really just confused evangelicals who, for the most part, believe uh, you know the the core doctrines of orthodox of the orthodox historic Christian faith and also want to, you know to make room for the so called evidences that now are are mounting a, you know that make it so that to to, to Deny evolution is just silly, you know. By the way, no, I, I, I again, always deny uh, evolution um, on scientific grounds as well as on doctrinal theological grounds. I, I don't think there's any good scientific evidence to say that I need to affirm evolution as a as a fact as to how we got here on planet Earth. And the new evidence that supposedly is uh, is being put forward by geneticists is I don't find it compelling either. So. Anyway, and then in our sermon review, we're going to be going down to Texas to a fellowship church, uh, Pastor Ed Young Jr. from the creativepastors.com website. Um, who is, a, you know, Ed Young is a pastor of pastors. I mean, he, I mean, he's so important in the pastoring of pastors department that he, he, he flies around the country in a private jet. And, uh, and you know, and so that's how important this guy is. And so uh, we're going to be listening to uh, his sermon entitled, entitled Swagger Jacker. Um, and the subtitle of that sermon is, I think I can, and you think I'm making that up, but uh, so I'm going to basically be asking the question, um, well, a series of questions along the lines of how does this make Christianity more understandable? How does this make Christianity relevant to people who are so-called seekers? I mean, because Ed Young Jr. is one of the primary guys who's into seeker-driven, purpose-driven methodologies for doing church, you know, for changing the church service so that it's no longer a place where Christians come to to hear the Word of God clearly exegeted and 
and expositorily preached. No, 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 no. It's about meeting the felt needs of so-called seekers. So I, again, the question I have is, how does this even meet the need of a so-called seeker? And how does this do it even accurately according to the Bible? I mean, how does this make Christianity more understandable? Those are kind of the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking on um, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So um, make yourself comfortable. Um, those of you living in the Midwest and experiencing the heat wave that is the Midwest, boy, i te- got to tell you, out here in the Midwest, you man, the, the the winters are cold, the summers are hot. I mean, in the studio right now, I am looking at the um, I am looking at our uh, thermometer here in the studio. It is ninety four degrees in the studio, with seventy percent humidity. <laughs> I'm in shorts anyway. Going, why aren't you running the air conditioner? <clears throat> Well, um, the, the reason is is because um, I, I'm not 100% certain that we're going to make budget in the month of June, so I've decided that I'm going to cut expenses by keeping the air conditioner off. And I'm, I just have a little fan going on, and I'm drinking a lot of ice water and uh, have a fan going. So there we go. Anyway, so let's dive into the program proper. Are you familiar with the fact that Patricia King claims that she gets special messages from God that she's supposed to pass along to people because they're, you know. Yeah, so one of our services that we do here at Fighting for the Faith is that when Patricia King claims that she's got a special message, direct revelation from God, we've got to pass it along because she doesn't actually. The weird thing is, is that when God talks to her, um, and gives her these words of knowledge, um, God never seems to give the address or the name or the phone number of the person to whom this message is supposed to go to. So, you know, she's, she's got to broadcast this, these messages without without any specificity as to who they're supposed to go to. So here's Patricia King. Here we go. I see um, a vision right now of knitting needles, and there's a garment being knit. And somewhere along the line, um, a stitch slipped. And there's a little bit of a hole in the garment. And what I feel like the Lord's showing me is that, is that someone watching this program, that you feel like that's you. You think, I had a call to the mission field. I went. I got discouraged. And then I just, I just gave up. And so you continued on with your life, but there's this little hole in the garment. And I feel like God's saying that he's going to call you to pick up the slipped stitch. And he's going to open up an opportunity for you to go back on that mission field. And you're So, I mean, so if you've got a slip stitch out there that has something to do with the mission field and um yeah, great news. Um, you, you, things are going to get, uh, that, that slip stitch is going to get fixed. You're going to redeem the time because... Yeah, and your time is going to get redeemed. Very important. Yeah, you, you, you don't want unredeemed time. That would be bad. He is a redeemer of the time. Yes. See, God redeems time. You've always felt bad about what happened there. Yeah, so probably bad guilt regarding the slip stitch regarding the mission field. But God is going to bring it back into fullness and into wholeness. Yeah, so back to fullness and wholeness because he redeems time. And so just seek him on this because the way is going to be open for you. Right. I have no idea what any of that meant. No clue as to what any of that meant. But uh, again, we do this from time to time. 
as a public service to our listeners here at Fighting for the Faith, because, I mean, you actually could be the person that um, um, that this is uh, supposed to go to. You're, you're the person who, who feels like you've had a slip stitch and, uh, and you need your time redeemed so that you can have wholeness and fullness. And, uh, and so the, this is a positive message for you. I'm, I'm, whoever you are, I, I'm sure this will just make your life that much better. Uh, moving along. Ah, yeah, that could mean only one thing. We've got an update regarding Stephen Furtick. You know, I haven't seen the sun standing still lately. It makes me wonder if that prayer even works. That would make the news, wouldn't it? Come on, sing along if you know the words. You're so vain I bet you think the Bible's about you You're so vain I bet you think the Bible's about you Don't you, don't you Oh, I'm sorry, Carly I I know it's not good when I uh, you do a duet with me But, uh, you know, we have to do that whenever we do a Stephen Furtick update Anyway, Stephen Furtick on his uh, blog, stephenfurtick.com, uh, just yesterday posted a, um, a, <clears throat> a blog post in- entitled, A Master Vision Caster's Question. Now, I, you know, I'm going to have a question about this question when we get to the question. But uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> here's uh, what Stephen Furtick writes. He says, there's a crucial question every ministry leader must answer when it comes to their Vision. And the question is this When do you know the vision has become ingrained in the culture of your church and not just in your own dreams? <laughs> and you're going, What is he talking about? Well, let me read a little bit more before we get to that. <clears throat> Stephen Furtick writes, He says, It's not enough to have a vision, even a compelling one. Yeah, so if you have a compelling vision out there, you vision casters, it's not enough. Even if it's a compelling vision, it's just not enough. It's not enough to be able to communicate your vision well. And it definitely isn't enough to be passionate about your vision. And of course, you're getting uh, you're going to be passionate about your vision. It's it's your vision, he writes. So what you really want is for the vision to stick to infiltrate and permeate every area of the church, to be so ingrained in your culture that people speak the vision and do the vision without even thinking about it. And if those of you who go to normal churches that are actually biblical are going, what is he talking about? Well, hang on, hang on. i gotta, I got to read a little bit more. But how do you know when this has happened, you know, when the vision is really sticking? Uh, Two indicators uh, stick out to me, and I'll be covering them over the next two days. So here's the first. When the best ideas are not your own, when the vision has become ingrained in your culture, great ideas should be flowing from all directions. The pastor shouldn't be the chief idea officer, but the chief vision officer. His responsibility is to make sure that the ideas are fitting into the vision. 
not generate all of the ideas for the vision. If all of the best ideas are coming from the pastor, it's a sign that the vision hasn't truly been owned by the people. It's only being served. In other words, for your staff and your volunteers, it's still your vision. And since it's your vision, you should be the one coming up with the best ideas for it, and then they'll support you by making them happen. As Christine Kane would say, they see themselves as servants of your vision rather than as stewards of a vision that has become their own. The vision isn't going very far this way. I don't care if you're Steve Jobs. You don't have enough great ideas in you to keep it going. So the solution, regularly demand people to bring their own ideas to the table so and set the expectation that fresh ideas for how to carry out the vision aren't welcomed. They're expected. Remind the people you're leading, you're leading that the vision isn't just yours. It's everyone's and everyone's can and should contribute. And when they do reward and recognize them in front of everyone make them the standard and um, don't be surprised when great ideas start flowing from people other than yourself and you're going what did you just read and what does that have to do with anything well I- I'm glad you ask um, because uh, here he- here's the idea um, seeker-driven pastors are working with a false doctrine Okay, and here's their false doctrine. Their false doctrine is they believe that they can prepare themselves and make themselves worthy to receive from God a specific vision from God that's unique for their church. And uh, if you haven't listened to Fighting for the Faith and heard the uh, the podcast that I've done the podcast pertaining to this issue, then may I recommend that you go to fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you need to type into the search box uh, this name, Dan Sutherland. Yeah, type in the name Dan Sutherland or look in the archives for the February 26, 2010 edition of Fighting for the Faith. I did what was called a special edition on the cult-like hostile takeover tactics of the purpose-driven church transitioning seminar, okay? And you need to hear that special edition because the idea here is, is that Dan Sutherland it basically exemplifies what goes on in the in the uh, seeker driven movement the idea is, is that each individual pastor can make himself worthy to receive from god a specific a specific and unique vision that then the uh, and that they then are responsible to take the vision that god has given them for their church and they are to cast that vision to their the, their followers and the job of the people then in those congregations is to get behind the specific vision of that pastor. Now, let me, if you think I'm crazy, uh, let me read to you something from the Elevation Church website. At the elevationchurch.org, sorry, elevationchurch.org website, if you go to the new uh, section at the, you know, the top of the, they got home, new, connect, media, giving, search, and you go to new and then go down to the code. Okay, 
Go down to the code. Let me read to you a little bit of the code there at Elevation Church. The code is our core set of values at Elevation Church. It sets the tone and trajectory for how we get things done. If the mission is the compass, the code is the map that gives us direction. Number one, we act in audacious faith. <clears throat> Why did I... Why does this not surprise me? In order to dominate a city with the gospel of Jesus, we can't think small. We will set impossible goals and take bold steps of faith and watch God move. Two, we are a generation of honor. We freely give honor to those above us, beside us, and under us because of the calling and potential God has placed inside of them. Three, we lead the way in generosity. Four, we are united under the visionary. That's right. Number four of the code at Elevation Church is we are united under the visionary. Elevation Church is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. We will aggressively defend our unity and his vision. So why does Elevation Church do what Elevation Church does well, the answer to that question is simple, because uh, Stephen Furtick believes that he has received a specific vision from God, and the job of the people at the uh, at Elevation Church is to get behind the specific God-given vision that Stephen Furtick made himself worthy to receive. Again, you need to go and listen to the archives, listen to Dan Sutherland's uh, Church Transition, Inc. seminar and the things, the principles that they teach there. Now, here's the problem. The Bible does not teach that a pastor can make himself worthy or not worthy to receive a specific vision from God for his or her unique congregation that they're to lead. The Bible doesn't say this at all. In fact, this idea of mission and vision and values comes to us from the corporate world. You're familiar with corporations that have mission and vision statements? The problem is, is that the vision statement has been brought into uh, the Christian church and has been baptized with some kind of prophetic meaning that the Bible doesn't teach. And if we're to be clear about this, no pastor is capable of having a mission and vision from God that is different than the mission and vision that God has put the church on. In other words, one of the foundational teachings of the seeker-driven church has to do with this idea that, that each of the pastors gets a specific vision from God, and that is a flat-out lie. The Bible nowhere teaches it. And notice that Stephen Furtick here in his answer to the question regarding you know vision casting and, and the vision never referenced a single Bible verse. And the reason why is because the Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible doesn't teach it at all. If you want to know... Jesus's mission and vision statements for the church, they're already given. And no pastor will be receiving any visions or mission statements from Christ that are contrary or different than the ones already given by him. In other words, pastors are under shepherds of the great shepherds. They are not CEOs or little kings in the, uh, in, in the church. They are servants of the church. And this CEO vision casting innovative stuff is nothing but a bunch of malarkey. God's word doesn't teach this. In fact, if you want to know what the mission and vision statements are for the church that still stand, they are this. Matthew 28, 
verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice he says he's with us always to the end of the age. In other words, the mission that the church is on, the Great Commission here in in Matthew 28, is still in effect. Because Jesus says this is the mission, and he's going to be with us until the end of the age, until he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Stephen Furtick and guys like him and Perry Noble and the those who've been trained by the Dan Sutherlandites are working from a false doctrine. And that false doctrine is, is that God's going to give a specific vision to an individual pastor. And the job of the people in, the, in those churches is to get behind that pastor's vision because it's from God. And you want to know how you get kicked out of a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church? Challenge the vision. It's synonymous. I'm serious. Church discipline is one of those lax things in the seeker-driven churches until you challenge or question the vision that supposedly was given by God to the pastor. In fact, you challenge or question the vision given to to a seeker-driven, purpose-driven pastor, that will get you kicked out of a seeker-driven church quicker, faster than than, uh, adultery or pedophilia. They will not tolerate, under any circumstances, anybody challenging the vision of the pastor. And many of these seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches have that built into their membership covenants. Yeah. In fact, Rick Warren specifically teaches seeker-driven pastors to include that into their into their membership covenants. The other part of uh, the so-called vision and mission statement given by Jesus is found in Luke chapter 24. Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending you the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The, the vision and mission statement given by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who will never be usurped by a seeker-driven, purpose-driven CEO, regardless of how creative and innovative and vision-casting he is, is that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching people to observe all that he has commanded and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. This doesn't get to change. And one of the things you're going to, it's going to be very clear in the sermon review today is that these seeker-driven, innovative, vision-casting pastors, they're not on mission. They're not following the vision that Jesus has for the church because they claim that they've received their own. And as a result of it, what they've ended up doing is jettisoning what they're supposed to be doing in favor of something that actually distracts people rather than makes people who disciples who understand all that Christ has taught and commanded. Very sad, but true. All right, we're up on our uh, first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? 
Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, pastors who claim that you've got to get behind the so-called vision that they've received from God, they actually don't believe correctly. They've bought a lie. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You hear me talking about it all the time, but the truth is we truly do depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. Now, if you don't already partner with us financially, please, 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 please do so. The way you do so, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, this week, we're going to be sending out our ebook for the month, uh, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Fantastic stuff, and it's not uh, tainted by any innovative vision-casting malarkey and nonsense. It it shows you what clear exposition and exegesis of the Gospel of Matthew looks and sounds like. So this is something you definitely want to do, because when you do this, you'll understand just how far off the mark these guys who claim to be uh, doing stuff that is methodologically, well, superior and new because God has given the vision to do so that they don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, time to move along here. She loves a monkey's uncle. She loves the monkey's uncle. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves a monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkey's uncle. Love all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine's. Yeah, monkey shine. That's right. <laughs> yeah, all right. It's time for a little bit of monkey shine. <laughs> 
That means we've got to be doing an evolutionary update here at Fighting for the Faith, and boy, are we ever. Okay, so uh, if those of you who are subscribers to Christianity Today, you know, the... <laughs> Because, you know, the Christianity today is so much better than the Christianity of yesterday. Anyway, uh, they've got a, their feature story for the uh, for the June edition of, uh, of Christianity Today is all about the dust-up and controversy regarding evolution and the, and the, uh, and, uh, the literal historical Adam and Eve. Well, anyway, I'm going to read to you the op-ed piece from uh, Christianity Today's editorial section. And the name of the piece is No Adam, No Eve, No Gospel. So this is from Christianity Today's editorial section, and I want to read this to you and basically ask the question, why on earth is this considered compelling by anybody? Anyway, um, so whoever wrote this piece, here's what they write. Science as we know it grew from pagan occultic, occult and biblical roots. Uh, Christianity Today likes to emphasize the biblical sources. Well, that's awful nice of them. Uh, The story of creation told in Genesis and elaborated in the New Testament uh, pictures a rational intelligence creating an orderly and predictable cosmos. Without that predictability in the natural world, neither Newton nor Einstein would have been possible. There are times, however, when a careful reading of the natural world seems to conflict with our reading of Scripture. Sometimes Christian, uh, Christian ways of thinking must adjust. Two famous names, Copernicus and Galileo, tell the tale. Other times, Christian thinkers... <clears throat> Yeah, uh, when I think of Galileo and the uh, whether or not the uh, the uh, the Earth is the center of the universe and whether or not the Earth is flat or round, uh, the reality is is that the Bible doesn't teach that the Earth is the center of the universe or that the Earth is flat. And so, um, comparing you know the evolutionary controversy to that. Well, that's the problem is, is that we do have clear passages in the scripture that say that God created the world in six days and that he created it. In fact, there's no biblical passages that you can use to support evolution at all. Anyway, um, other times Christian thinkers adopt some, uh, some of what scientific research suggests, but hold firm on key aspects of biblical knowledge. The name B.B. Warfield tells the tale. The Princeton theologian and professor uh, 1921, taught in the wake of the Darwinian evolution, he and fellow evangelical leaders saw good reasons to believe that humanity's physical form was descended from other animals. However, two key biblical teachings kept these uh, theologians from eating the whole Darwinian apple. First, in Darwinian thought, pure randomness was the engine of evolution, but randomness denies the divine reason, the logos and the language of John's gospel behind the creative process. Christians must root for intelligence over chance. Second, Darwinian evolution challenged the belief that human beings were created in the image of God. This doctrine was a hedge against racist theories that would be used to subjugate, exploit, and eradicate undesirable people, all in the name of survival of the fittest, which, by the way, is always at the core of genocides. Uh, it's a big. It was a Darwinian evolutionary theory is a key concept in the in abortion. It's a key concept in euthanasia. It's a key concept in uh, Nazi uh, fascist thinking and a key concept in communist thinking. And think about the genocides that have occurred in those societies. Anyway, Warfield rightly saw the the dangers in Darwin while trying to learn from the biological science of his time. Now we've come to another great moment of tension between Christian readings of scripture and science. The this issues cover story, The Search for the Historical Adam, reports the claims of recent genetic research that the human race did not emerge from pre-human animals as a single pair, as an Adam and an Eve. The complexity of the human genome, we are told, requires an original population 
of around 10,000. So this this is the latest claim from you know evolutionary genetic uh, uh, people who are in, involved in the human genome. Anyway, um, so okay, let me see if I got this straight. So uh, he, he, the human race didn't come from a single human pair, Adam and Eve, but the original population of humans was ten thousand humans. Just keep that in mind. I want you to keep that thought in your mind. Just remember. So the original human population consisted of 10,000 humans. Just keep that in mind. <clears throat> so Christians have already drawn the line. There must be an original pair of humans endowed with souls. That is the spiritual capacity to relate to God in the special way Genesis describes. In 1996, John Paul II stressed Pius XII's dictum that if the origin of the human body comes through living matter which existed previously, the spiritual soul is created directly by God. And institutional statements of faith, such as Wheaton colleges, set limits by affirming that original couple's existence. Quote, God directly created Adam and Eve, the historical parents of the entire human race, in his own language, distinct from all other living creatures and in a state of original righteousness. So what is at stake? Well, first, the entire story of what is wrong with the world hinges on the disobedient exercise of the will by the first humans. The problem with the human race is not its dearth of insight, but its misshapen will. Second, the entire story of salvation hinges on the obedience of the second Adam, the Apostle Paul, the earliest Christian writer, to interpret Jesus. Jesus' work called Adam a type of one who was to come, Romans 5, 14, and wrote that just as we have been, have borne the image of the man of the dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. He elaborated an Adam Christology that described a fallen humanity headed by Adam and a new redeemed humanity with Christ as its head. We continue. This understanding that Christ's obedience undoes Adam's disobedience is not some late development, but is integrated with the earliest interpretations of what God did and is doing in Christ. This conceptual framework is almost impossible without a first human couple. Mm-hmm. Hebrew thought offers one clue to resolving this tension, the corporate nature of humanity. Scripture often calls groups of people by the name of their historical head. Israel is an obvious example. So are Canaan and Cush. At times, Scripture also holds groups of people morally responsible for the actions of some of their members. Thus, some have suggested, as does John Collins in Did Adam and Eve Really Exist from Crossway 2011, that if both biblical and scientific clues suggest a larger population contemporary with Adam and Eve, whom did Cain marry, whom did God protect him from, we can still conceive of Adam and Eve as leaders of that original population. That suggestion, by the way, the Bible text doesn't say this at all, in fact, doesn't even hint at it. Uh, th that suggestion has the virtue of embracing both a prehistoric couple and a prehistoric population. At this juncture, we counsel patience. We don't need another fundamentalist reaction against science. We need instead a positive interdisciplinary engagement that recognizes the goodwill of all involved, uh, that creative thinking takes time in, our long, in the long run. It may be the humility of our scholars as much as their technical extra expertise that will bring us into the deeper knowledge of the truth. So uh, Christianity Today is trying to you know, create space so that you know, we, we, don't, we don't have another fundamentalist reaction. You know, and I, I, you know it's so funny. Is, um, hmm. Um, again, 
I don't see any scientific reason for believing this new claim. Let me read a little bit from uh, Gene Edward Veith's blog, GeneVeith.com. The name of his blog is Cronach, the blog of Veith. 10,000 Adam and Eves? Veith writes, he says, Thus far, the main controversy between Christianity and mainline scientists has been over evolution. Many Christians have tried to resolve that dilemma by embracing theistic evolution, the notion that God did create every living thing, but that he used evolution to do it. Never mind that Darwin's theory of evolution specifically insists on the randomness of mutations and natural selection. Believing that evolution is directed is beyond the pale of actual Darwinian and is just another form of intelligent design, despite the theistic evolutionist's claim. Anyway, the theistic evolutionists often still affirm the historical existence of some kind of Adam and Eve. The first humans, however, they evolved, who in some way fell from the paradisical state and transmitted original sin to their descendants, who were redeemed by Christ, the second Adam. But now a new front in the battle has opened up which according to Christianity Today is raising new questions and opening up a new level of controversy. According to a recent genetic, uh, to recent genetic evidence, the human race did not begin with two people. Rather, it must have begun with a population of around 10,000. Otherwise, according to the geneticists, there is no way to account for the genetic diversity that we can currently observe. Now, <clears throat> It's hard to imagine how 10,000 creatures could at the same time evolve into the same species. I can't help but wonder, where do they come from? Who were their parents? How can anyone explain how the geneticists answer that? Um, and Veith writes, an accompanying editorial in Christianity Today says that without a historical Adam and Eve, the whole gospel comes apart since there would be no original sin and no second Adam who could redeem us. Does that take it too far? Could Adam, which means literally man, refer to human beings in a collective way, all of which, all of whom have reenacted the fall in their own lives, whereupon Christ in his incarnation did indeed become man and thus Adam to redeem the human race? Some are arguing that a story can be true in its meaning if it does not if it does not recount literal historical events, should Christians be seeking an interpretation like that or reject the genetic findings or just not jump to conclusions since scientific findings are never complete and are themselves always being reinterpreted. At any rate, I suppose this evidence should bother me or uh, suppose it should bother me or shake my faith in the Bible, but strangely it does not strangely. It does not. How about you? Now, you know what? It doesn't shake my faith either. Again, So here's, let me see if I got this straight. We don't have any evidence of any transitional species, not a single one. And, um, and uh, now, according to geneticists, the original population of human beings had to be about 10,000. So whatever we were, bef- whatever the human race was before uh, it became the human race as we know it genetically right now, um, that whatever species we evolved from, that, that that leap took place at the same time with 10,000 different human beings. So within the lifespan of a human, of a human life, there were 10,000 human beings who popped up evolutionarily from who, whatever species we supposedly evolved from all at the same time. Right. Um, 
I'm having a hard time believing that. You know, so, um, so I mean, maybe there's 10,000 of the new species right now somewhere on the planet. We just haven't seen them yet. I mean, they're, and they've got to find each other, you know. Whatever the next leap is forward evolutionarily, I mean, maybe there's 10,000 human beings that are like the superhuman beings, the the Ubermenches running around, uh, right? Yeah, I don't see any particular reason to think that the, this genetic claim is compelling because, if anything, it makes evolution even less tenable. And it wasn't tenable to begin with, and there wasn't, and there isn't any physical evidence for it in the first place. So not only... I mean, now we've just added another thing. In order for evolution to be true, well, 10,000 human beings had to evolve spontaneously at the same time from whatever we came from. Yeah, um, like I said, magic beans. That's what's going on here. I mean, so we've got a whole bunch of Christians who are saying, oh, no, the geneticists say that there had to be 10,000 uh, uh, original human beings, not two, to account for all of the diversity within the genetic code. Oh, no, no. Oh, so we have to genesis. We have to rethink everything. Uh, no, I don't think we do, um, because uh, my question is, really, where's the evidence that this took place scientifically? Sounds like a myth to me. Yeah, magic beans, magic beans. That's what they're trying to do. We want they're trying to get us to exchange the truth uh, for the equivalent of magic beans. The magic beans that make it possible for ten thousand humans to spontaneously evolve from whatever species we supposedly came from. Okay, I'm sure uh, being raised in the home of uh, of a different species was awkward. You know. Very, very awkward. Very difficult for those first original 10,000 human beings to be raised by, you know, a, a, a monkey's uncle. I mean, you know, that's pretty much what we're talking about here. Talk about monkey shine. I love the monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle they for me. And for me. All right. Yeah. Moving along uh, in the same vein, by the way, folks, uh, it's not evangelical Christians like B.B. Warfield today who are championing Darwinian evolution. I sadly, I think Warfield uh, basically was sold us downstream a little bit. He was wrong and he knows better now because he's in, in all the company of heaven lauding and magnifying the name of our glorious risen Lord and Savior you know, in his heavenly kingdom. Um, but the, uh, the folks who are out there championing um, evolution and Christianity, yeah, let me remind you again what these, these folks really sound like. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome to episode 25 of the Advent of Evolutionary Christianity, Conversations at the Leading Edge of Faith. I'm Michael Dowd, and I'm your host for this series, which can be accessed at evolutionarychristianity.com. Today, Gail Warcello is our featured guest. Sister Gail is a Catholic nun and co-founder with Thomas Berry of the Green Mountain Monastery, the first Catholic community of women specifically dedicated to living in right relationship with our planet and supporting others in doing the same. She holds degrees in clinical psychology and Christian spirituality and is working on a new book, Moments of Grace, 
which explores the current evolutionary breakthrough in the long lineage of Catholic women's communities. Toward the end of our conversation, you'll hear Sister Gail extend an invitation to women whose hearts are on fire with the love of God and who desire to contribute their gifts to the whole earth community. If you're a young woman, and this conversation with Sister Gail speaks to your heart as much as it did mine, please do reach out to her at Green Mountain Monastery. I'll include contact information in my blog post on our dialogue. Hello, Gail Warcello, and thank you for joining this conversation on evolutionary Christianity. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Gail, since the summer of 2009, quite a few people have been journeying to your Green Mountain Monastery in Vermont, not just for the workshops and the retreats that you hold there, but also because a mentor to you and to so many of us in this movement requested to be buried on the grounds. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure, yes. I'd like to honor the man, Thomas Berry, who has been mentored to so many of us and who has advanced our thinking in terms of evolutionary cosmology and spirituality. And that man, Thomas Berry, was a cultural historian and a Catholic priest in the Passionist Order. And in the last 25 years of his life, he became a historian of Earth and actually called himself a geologian. A geologian, really? Huh? Yeah, this doesn't sound anything like uh, the Apostle John or the doctrine taught by Peter or Jesus or anybody in the Bible. It's weird. A geologian. Hmm. Because we could see that he moved from human history to cosmological history. And it was out of his concern for the direction of human Earth history that he developed the seminal piece entitled The New Story. And that piece came out in 1978. And then later on in 1988, in his book, The Dream of the Earth. And I think his aim in that piece was to evoke our psychic spiritual resources in order to establish a new reciprocity between ourselves and the planet, because his whole vision was for a flourishing Earth community. And I believe he thought that with a change in worldview, we would come up with a comprehensive ethics for reverence for life and the planet and that um, by understanding our place in the unfolding universe, we would emerge an awareness of our role in guiding the evolutionary process forward. Oh, right. So now we, we have a role in guiding the evolutionary process forward in Christ. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, I, the reason I'm playing this, folks, is because the one the people who are out there telling us to embrace evolution and to rethink Christianity, they're not content with just rethinking Adam and Eve. No, they're rethinking the whole thing. And now we're supposed to be participating with Christ in guiding the next step of evolution. Hmm. And you know, I was thinking about a story that Thomas told us one day regarding Confucius. At one point, Confucius was teaching his students, and his students said to him, you tell us all of these things, you know, you overwhelm us. Couldn't you just make it simple? And Confucius said, okay, I'll give it all to you in one word, reciprocity. And mm -hmm. uh, then Confucius went on to say, if you take, you must give. And that's the first principle in our relationship to earth is reciprocity. And I think that sums up, in a sense, Thomas Berry's sentiments and particularly his mysticism. Ooh, say more about that, because I think that that's something that a lot of people 
who didn't know Thomas Berry personally wouldn't have been quite aware of, uh, and yet it was so central to his life and to many of us who have uh, been following in his footsteps. Say more about his mysticism. Right, he's a mystic. And he's mixing Christianity and Confucianism. Mm-hmm. Sure. I remember that on the first day of class with Thomas Berry, when I was a novice, he began by telling us the story of his encounter with a meadow, which became for him a revelatory moment that shaped his mysticism, I believe. And I remember him saying that whenever I think about my life attitude and the whole trend of my mind and the causes to which I've given my life, I come back to the meadow and the impact that it has had on my feeling for what is real and worthwhile. Mm. And uh, the meadow was an experience that Thomas Berry had as a boy of 11 when in his hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina, where um, he was outdoors and came across a creek, which he crossed over. And after the creek, he came into a meadow, and the field or the meadow was covered with white lilies rising above thick grass. It was a magic moment for Thomas, and I just imagine him falling to his knees in that moment and in his North Carolinian drawl crying out, Oh, altitudo sapiensiae, which means how deep, how immense is the wisdom of God. And when I reflect on his meadow experience as he communicated to us, I think that at that moment Thomas had, you know, not so much an epiphany but a geophany, which is the sudden revelation of the presence of the divine penetrating the earth and all of reality. And I think that in that geotic- Notice the Eastern panentheism going on here, too. I mean, they're completely rethinking. this. These guys who are supposedly in the visible church embracing evolution and Christianity, they're rethinking everything. And now Christianity is about mysticism and panentheism and guiding the next step of evolution and having a mystical experience with a meadow or, and a creek. Uh, your brother, the, the meadow. Your sister, the, the river. Vision. Thomas had a shattering of boundaried or separation consciousness, and that's what laid the foundation for his mysticism of the cosmos. And Thomas then would say, whatever preserves and enhances the meadow in its natural cycles of transformation is good. Whatever opposes or negates the meadow is not good. And I believe the meadow became, for Thomas, the archetype for the Mm. entire Earth community. Really, in this experience, Thomas took a deep dive into the unitive experience with the meadow, and when he came up, he was actually able to translate the experience and challenge the four great establishments, government, religion, economics, and education, by saying a good jurisprudence would recognize the rights of the meadow, a good religion would celebrate the deep mystery of the meadow. A good economics would keep the balance of the meadow. That's right. You better be out there picketing for meadows' rights. Yeah, I wonder if they could vote. No. And a good education would study the meadow and Mm. model its basic patterns. So Thomas, in the end, would say, you know, whatever preserves the meadow is good. Whatever opposes the meadow is not good. Now, keep in mind, this this conversation is part of the evolutionarychristianity.com 
web-based series of lecture of, of conversations, a, a webinar of sorts with multiple people participating, including Doug Paget, uh, Carl Guyberson, uh, Michael Dowd's hosting, uh, Ian Lawton. Uh, 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 I mean, it the the li- I mean, John Shelby Spawn. The list is huge. These are the people in the visible church who are embracing evolution and rethinking Christianity in light of evolution. Does this sound like biblical Christianity to you at all? And I think that's foundational to an understanding of his mysticism of the cosmos. Yeah. Wow, that was great. In fact, I'd never heard until this conversation the word geophany before. That's a wonderful one. Mm -hmm. One of the other phrases that I think he coined. Geophany. Oh, man. I think he coined that I found really useful, and many of us have, is moving beyond the dichotomy of transcendent or imminent, that he created this term, the incendence. Of- <laughs> Otherwise known as panentheism. Good, good night. The divine, that, that, that God is incendent, that is the beyond within. It's, yeah. again, that idea of being a geologian, a theologian of the earth, a theologian of the, of, of, of the, the natural world. Um, yes. You know, I was thinking, too, in my encounter, my first encounter with Thomas happened in 1984. And at the time, I was a novice with the Congregation of the Passionists, which, as you know, is a religious order in the Catholic Church. And mm-hmm. at that time, the novice directors had set up an institute of learning, and they invited scholars and others to share their expertise with us through lectures and classes. And at that time, Thomas Berry was a seasoned member of the order, the Passionist Order, and had been a member for 48 years. So he was invited to come and give us classes. And in hindsight, I think it was odd that Thomas would have been invited to speak to to a bunch of novices because he was considered in the congregation to be a wild monk on the cosmic fringe. (laughs) And yet he was recognized as a man of towering intellect. But his message at the time was barely comprehended, you know, by by the order, and Uh probably by many that he preached to. I remember him preaching a sermon to the order about uh, challenging them on preaching about the passion of Christ and saying, how could you preach about the passion of Christ when the, the passion of the earth is undergoing irreversible damage? Mm. Yeah, and anyway, in the first class, he walked in and... So the passion, the sufferings of Jesus Christ, how can you be preaching about that when the earth is is suffering? Yeah, even the cross gets uh, reworked. And uh, the day before, we had gone to take a visit uh, of the coal mines in the in the northeast region of Pennsylvania, which is where... Mm my monastery was and where the class was held. So we had been in the anthracite valley of that region, and we went into the coal mines and we had picked up some anthracite. So on the day of the class, he picked up the stone and he placed it in the sweeping periodization of history that was so characteristic of his style by taking that stone and contextualizing it within the great story of the universe. So he took it and he, he held it up and he said, it took 15 billion years to make this stone. And then he proceeded to go through the great sweeps of time from galactic to earth to life to human. 
And I think that was another characteristic of Thomas's style and of also bringing the imminent and the transcendent into, into the um, numinosity of, of matter. Yes. Yeah. Many people... Uh, into the luminosity of matter. Okay. Uh, referred to him as the Teilhard de Chardin of today. Right. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, Gail, could you also say something else about uh, Father Thomas? Because he focused on moments of grace, that concept. Uh, in fact, I my great story beads, each bead represents some significant transformational moment in the history of the universe. That I, and I've often referred to them as moments of grace as a result. Oh, man. Boy, we've even got like a, a, an evolutionist rosary with story beads talking about the different epics and eras of uh, of evolutionary oh boy as it was a result of being influenced by by thomas uh, say a little bit about that concept yes uh, thomas referred he talked about moments moments of grace as privileged moments in which the future is defined in some enduring pattern and you know he would say that moments of grace have a sacrificial aspect associated with them yeah just like the cross um and in a moment of grace, the world is born into a radically new phase of existence. So he, you know, in his uh, conceptual framework, he certainly talked about cosmological moments of grace, those great moments in the story of the universe that set the stage for further unfolding, such as the Big Bang or the supernova explosion that gave birth to our solar system or the moment of photosynthesis. You know, et cetera. So you, you, know, you got that sense of of cosmological moments of grace in the sweep of time. Yeah. So apparently we've got a whole new narrative that we need to embrace spiritually, and that's the uh, the evolutionary narrative. And look at how they've religious religiousized it, spiritualized it, mysticized it. Does this sound anything? anything like biblical Christianity at all. This is what Christianity gets rethunk into when you rethink it in light of Darwinian evolution. Yeah, we're going to take a break. Monkeys, uncle, and I wish I were the monkeys. And we'll be right monkeys back. And we don't need to Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. So here's the uh, question as we're listening to the sermon. Since this particular pastor, Ed Young Jr., is uh, teaching other pastors to pastor the way that he's pastoring, is um, what exactly um, is being taught here? How is this relevant how does this fulfill the uh, duties of a pastor to preach the word in season and out of season? Yeah, we got to ask these questions. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Fellowship Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Pastor Ed Young Jr. presiding the name of the sermon, Swagger Jacker. I think I can. Yeah, Swagger Jacker. Apparently, you can have your swagger hijacked. So, um, yeah, does this fall under the category of sound biblical doctrine that points us to Christ and Him crucified for our sins? Does this point us to uh, our sinful nature, point us to the things that we've done to offend a holy and just God? And does it bring us to repentance and contrition and sorrow for those sins, and then point us to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins as the solution to the uh, sins that we've committed against our holy, good, loving, and just God? Or does this just point us to ourself and engage in bizarre silliness? How is this Christian? What exactly is Christian about this sermon? That's the thing I want to know. So without any further ado, here is um, Ed Young Jr. and uh, his sermon entitled Swagger Jacker. I think I can. To the Creative Pastors podcast featuring Ed Young. Creative Pastors is where you'll find Fellowship Church resources including transcript downloads, video materials, books, leadership tools, and more. That's right. Ed Young Jr. is a pastor to pastors. He flies around the country at his private jet teaching pastors how to do what he does. Let's see if this is something you want your pastor doing. Now, join us for a message from Ed. 
Let's bring it back. Bring swagger back. Is that why Jesus came to earth? God incarnate, second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son, only begotten of the Father, come to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was his mission to bring swagger back. Did the apostles exemplify swagger? Is is, is swagger one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? You know, I'm just asking these questions because I'm very curious. Bring swagger back at all of our campuses, downtown Dallas and Fort Worth, Plano, and also down, whoa, 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 in Miami. That's all right. Turnover. That's okay. That's okay. I got it. Thank you. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. Let's give her a round of applause. She had no idea I was going to back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys be seated. Be seated. Thanks so much for being here. All the freeways are closed. I almost didn't show up to church today myself. 114 was shut down. 121 was shut down. It's going to be amazing when these freeways open back up. But, man, you got to work to get to church. you got to drive to church with some swagger, don't you? I'm telling you what. Well, today I'm talking about swagger jacker. That's weird, isn't it? Swagger jacker. What is swagger jacker? Well, hopefully today we'll discover what it means to have swagger, and also what it means for people and certain things to hijack our swagger. I love children's books. I really, really do. And I guess... Um, is this sound biblical, Doctor? I have yet to read a systematic theology that talks about the doctrine of swagger. Um, yeah, I don't see it listed under the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Is this something that Christian pastors are supposed to be concerning themselves with? And opening up the Bible and giving a solution from the Bible for, you know, recovering swagger? The reason I love children's books so much is because my mother loves nursery rhymes, and she loved especially reading books to me. One of my favorite children's books of all time, I mean, back in the day, I loved this book. You probably heard about it, The Little Engine That Could. Um... Really? This is Christian preaching. You ever heard that before? The little engine that could. If you've never heard about it, let me give you just a summary of it. The little engine that could. It's about a a train engine. And all these other engines didn't really want to do this because they said they couldn't do it or didn't feel like doing it. But the little engine that could took this hill, took this mountain. Throughout the story, the little engine that could as it climbed this mountain, said, because the engine talked in this book, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And as the mountain became steeper and steeper, I think I can, I think I can. And as a kid, you're reading along with your your parent, and you're like, oh, surely this engine can make it. And finally, the engine gets to the apex of the mountain, and as it cruises down, it says, I thought I could, 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 I thought I could. I love that. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. I love that. You know why I love this so much? I was thinking about that. I love that story so much because the story is all about confidence. That train had some serious swagger, didn't it? 
And, and which part of the Bible is the story of the little train that could? And where do we find this in the scriptures? I, I'm just very curious. Where where can we find this important biblical book? It was little. Everyone said, no, no, that, that, that little engine can't do it. But the engine tackled the problem, said, I think I can. And then I thought I could. I think I can. I thought I could. A lot of us are facing mountains today. Let's just be straight with one another. We're facing maybe a marital mountain. Maybe you're facing a financial mountain. Maybe you're facing a mountain that is all about rebellion. You've got a student who's going his or her own way. Maybe you're facing a dead-end career. You're like, wow, it's a mountain. Maybe you're facing some sort of addiction. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's sexual addiction. I don't know. And you're saying to yourself, I can't. I mean, I can't make my marriage work. I can't get rid of this hurtful habit. I can't really control my kids. I can't, I can't, I can't. I understand. I understand because so often we face things, we face mountains and we say, I can't, I can't, I can't. I think though, it would be best to be honest with ourselves. And instead of saying, I can't, let's say what we really, really are feeling. I won't. Boy, this sounds like a motivational speech. It doesn't sound like a Christian sermon. I'm not hearing anything um, unique to Christ, the Bible, sound biblical doctrine, Christ-centered theology, um, the cross, any of that stuff. I mean, just... I mean, I could get this from Anthony Robbins. Maybe this is what it means to be a creative pastor, to abandon the clear teachings of the Bible in, in favor of a, a creating appealing messages, a messages that would be appealing to a general audience rather than a Christian audience so that uh, you don't have to have the offense of the cross there. I won't work on my marriage. I, I won't really make sure that that my kids, when they mess up, are facing consequences. I won't involve myself in... I mean, do you have to be a Christian? Do you need the Bible to teach you the importance of there being consequences when your children misbehave? You know, I'm just curious. In the local church, I won't really go to a support group offered here at Fellowship Church to get rid of... Is it a sin to go to, to not go to a support group? Some of this this toxicity in my life, I won't. I, Not sin, I, but toxicity. Yeah, we've got to get rid of toxicity. I won't do it because that's the deal. The good news is this book is not a children's book. This book is the book, the Bible. And the Bible is a book about I can. The Bible is a book about I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. No matter what mountain you're facing, Life is full of mountains. Life is full of hills. No matter what situation you're facing or I'm facing, by God's power, we can kind of have, we can have the swagger and the confidence to take mountains and to take hills. So is the solution to our problems, uh, marital problems, um, misbehaved children problems, uh, you know, maybe addiction problems, is, is, so the solution to these problems is swagger. 
Really, is this what the Bible teaches? That the the you know when I'm when I'm facing a problem like this, that the solution I need is swagger, and to go through the situation that we're facing. In other words, God says you can make it. You can make it. That's why, as a follower of Christ, we should have the most swagger of anybody. Sadly, though, we've allowed... They will know we are Christians by our swagger, by our swagger. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our swagger. I I, I sang a song similar to that when I was in high school. Uh, The enemy to steal, to hijack our swagger, to take our confidence. Jesus. Yeah, G, uh, the, the Satan, he he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy swagger. Jesus called him out in John chapter 10. He says the enemies come to steal, kill, and destroy. To steal your confidence, to kill your confidence. R- really, is that what Jesus, is that what the uh, that means in that passage? That Satan came to steal, to kill, and destroy. And what he really came to take away from you was confidence and swagger. Why do I feel like this falls woefully short of the problem that the Bible describes in Scripture? And to destroy your confidence. Then he said, I've come that you might... This is John 10.10, out of context. Uh, You may want to review previous episodes of Fighting for the Faith for long versions of why... This passage is doesn't mean what he's saying that it means. He, Jesus didn't say that I came that you're going to have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full to mean that you're you're supposed to have earthly possessions, fame, wealth, swagger. The life that Jesus offers isn't a life of swagger. It's something different. Limp through life. No. I've come that you might barely make it. No. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He wants us to live a full life, a confident life. Where does it say in there that we are to live a confident life? Confidence needs to have an object. What are we confident in? Now, some of us are like, wait a minute. You're talking about confidence in church? You're talking about swagger in church? That's right. God wants to swaggerify your life. Really, do you have a Bible verse that says that God wants to swaggerify my life? What is swagger? Swagger is how you present yourself to the world. Swagger is your style, your vibe, your flow. That's swagger. As followers of Christ, those of us here who know Christ personally, we should have spirit-led swagger. Do you have a Bible verse that talks about the need for Christians to have spirit-led swagger? We should have the greatest swagger of anyone. I'm not- Great. I, 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 I know you think this is important. Can you show me the clear swagger passages in the Bible? I'm not talking about arrogance. Arrogance is, I'm the man. Humility is, I'm God's man. In humility, though, we have this confidence. I call it Godfidence. Does anyone else in Christian history talk about Godfidence? I mean, that's a clever play on words, I'm sure. But uh, again, out of all of the uh, systematic theologians that have ever existed, out of any of the church fathers from the early church, uh, does does Origen, Irenaeus... um, 
Polycarp, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, Augustine, any of those guys, do they talk about, Justin Martyr, any of them talk about Godfidence, swagger as being a positive thing that the world needs to see in Christians? What are, uh, confidence to overcome life's little burps and hiccups, yeah, okay. Stay with me, Godfidence, who is the source of our confidence? God. We think, though, I can buy confidence, and we can to a certain extent. I can buy this car, buy this house, buy this wardrobe, buy this piece of jewelry, buy this vacation home. That will give me... <laughs> I'm sure you know all about buying jewelry and vacation homes. I'm glad you're uh, taking examples from your own life there, Ed. Confidence. And for a second, it gives you a fast temporary relief from the aches and pains of life. It gives you and gives me some confidence, but I'm talking about lasting confidence. I'm talking about real confidence. Confidence is not defined. I'm talking about Godfidence is not defined, is not defined by, by what you have or where you are. Well, great. I'm glad you're telling us how it's not defined. Can you show us a clear definition from a clear passage of Scripture Anywhere in the Bible that talks about Godfidence and swagger. Godfidence is confined by whose you are, who you are in Christ. Is it me or does it sound like he's just completely making up theology? He's just making his own categories, making up his own stuff. Real confidence, Godfidence is God-ordained. And the reason we search for it so much the reason we're after it so much is because it's a character quality of God. Think about the Garden of Eden back in the day. Adam and Eve had this confidence. They had this spirit-led swagger. One day, though... Really, the, where in the Genesis account does it talk about the Adam and Eve having spirit-led swagger? You, you got any examples? I mean, I want to see a clear passage... Otherwise, you're just do, you're engaging in what's called eisegesis, basically inserting things into the text that are not there. This is not what a Christian pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to preach the word. He's supposed to exegete it, read out what's in there for us. So they looked away from the source, away from God, to someone else. And from that day forward, after sin entered the human equation, we've been struggling with confidence and swagger. Yeah, so when sin came into the world, what it really did was steal people's confidence and swagger. That's like the holy grail. If you, if you really want to understand what the fall was all about, Adam's sin, well, it caused all of us to lose swagger and confidence. Seriously? God wants to swaggerify your life and mine. You know, just because you repeat it over and over again doesn't make it true. I, I'd like to see some passages on that, please. God wants us to move with confidence. There's this holy tension, though, out there. Some people in the Christian camp are arrogant about their humility. Did you hear me? Are you... Uh, okay, sure. Okay, yeah. That this is the bane of Christianity. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Uh, not really. There's a whole vibe in the Christian world. Oh, they're arrogant. They're prideful because they're so humble. That's not what I'm talking about. That's totally jacked up. What I'm talking about is 
somebody who understands that they offer God nothing. And once they offer God nothing and turn to him, he gives them everything. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. He's living his life through me. That is the source of spirit-led swagger. Yeah, um, again, I I need some clear passages here. Just because you're saying it doesn't make it true. I mean, maybe you're just, you're taking your creativity too far where you're creating doctrines that are not really in the Bible. That is the source of Godfidence. So I'm not talking about this, this weird thing where we're prideful in our humility. Look how humble I am. Yeah, I, I know. But see, here's the thing, Ed, is that um, I would really like to see the biblical definition. I'd like to see the Bible lay this out so that the Bible can clarify this rather than your own creativity. People think that Christians should walk around with their heads bowed and their shoulders slumped. Are you kidding me? Think about the people in the Bible. Think about the matriarchs and patriarchs. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. They would face this mountain. Then I thought I could. 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 By the grace of God. Abraham, the father of our faith, left his country. To follow God as an old guy. He said, God, you're going to deliver me. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. They tossed Joseph in the pit. Looked like it was curtains for him. What did Joseph say? He had some swagger. God will deliver me. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Really, uh, Joseph was a prime example of somebody saying, I think I can. Really? You expect us to take this seriously, right? Oh, man. He was promoted to the second most powerful position in the land. I thought I could. 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 David? Really? So the reason... Joseph thought when he was in prison that he would make a good pharaoh. I think I can. I think I can. And then when he finally was promoted to second in command under Pharaoh, that that he he was his attitude was I thought I could. See, I I knew I could do it all along. I I knew I great make a great second in command when it comes to running Egypt. That I thought I could. Huh. Doesn't seem to fit when you actually know the story of Joseph. This Hebrew Kid walks out in the valley of Elah to fight Goliath. He's like, whoo, this dude's big. God will deliver me. I think I can. I think I can. Uh, No, did you hear what you just said? You were quoting David there. God will deliver me. The the example that David gave, in fact, he talked about the fact that uh, God had delivered him from the bear, had delivered him from, uh, you know, from the hand of the lion, and so he, he basically reasoned that, well, if God delivered me from those, he would deliver me from the hand of that uncircumcised Philistine who was defying the um, armies of the living God. I, at least that's my recollection of the story. I don't, I don't recall David having swagger and believing that he could. And I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> I thought I could, 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 I thought I could. Samson, the biblical bodybuilder, 
who had a pride problem. It looked like it was over for him. Captured by the enemy, eyes gouged out in chains. You're butchering the story of Samson, by the way. Uh, you're forgetting all the parts about how um, he was a little bit of a ladies' man, and uh, this one woman, I think it was Delilah, uh, she, you know, was basically trying to get him to explain the source of his supernatural strength. Well, he was a Nazarite from the womb. Jesus himself appeared uh, prior to the uh, the uh, conception of. Samson. He was a Nazarite. His wife was, not his wife, but his mother didn't even drink any alcohol while she was pregnant with him. And then he never cut his hair. He, and so, you know, the source of his strength was God. And, uh, and this all was, has to do with the fact that from his conception, he was set apart for the work of God. And, and, uh, he was finally tricked to tell, to divulge the source of his strength. And he basically said, well, it might, it's my hair. It really was God. And, um, and so they shaved his head and he lost his strength. And then after he was, had his eyes gouged out and was put on display in a Philistine home where they were having a party, his hair began to grow back and he, cried out to God, he prayed that God would give him, him give him his strength, if only for a small moment, in order that his life might be avenged. And sure enough, God gave him the strength back. It's not that he had swagger there at the end, though. The Philistines were making sport of him. He bowed his head. He said, God will deliver me. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. Throughout Scripture, we see these things. Facing hills, facing mountains, facing difficulties, facing trials, facing situations. Then we have Jesus in the garden facing the cross, securing your eternal and my eternal security and confidence by... Securing our security and confidence. By dying on the cross and rising again. What did Jesus say? Boy, is that a is that a poor explanation of what the cross is all about? I know I can. 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 And look what that secured. Your freedom and mine. Look what that secured. Your freedom from what? Bad, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, lack of swagger? Your confidence and mine, I ask you, are you living with Godfidence? Certain people in certain situations hijack our swagger. The enemy does. Again, what's his agenda? Steal, kill, and destroy. Whenever yeah, apparently steal, kill, and destroy your swagger. Whenever you look, whenever I look away from God for confidence, we're going to have our confidence hijacked. God wants us flying at 30,000 feet. The enemy, though, wants to seize control, and he wants you and me to waste our time chasing the dream of swagger. Really, that, that's, that's the big drama between God and Satan, really. How did you get this out of the scriptures? I'm, I'm just curious. Swagger only comes from Godfidence. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. 
You might have walked in here, maybe you're here on the floor in the balcony, you're like, Ed, I've never been to church before. Did you say, did you say Filipino? Four, no, no, Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13. Paul was writing a letter to the Philippians while he was in prison. And if you want to talk about someone who understood confidence and swagger, just think about the Apostle Paul. He was in- Yeah, he, the Apostle Paul. He was just exuded swagger. Yeah, all, all, all the pseudepigraphal books written by the Gnostics talk about that. Yeah, but none of the ones in the New Testament actually do. Imprisoned frequently, beaten severely, exposed to death regularly. He's in Folsom Prison, and he's writing... Thank you, Johnny Cash. He's writing this text. And this has some, some, some serious swagger. I can do all things, he said, through Christ who strengthens me. Once again, let me say it. God wants to swaggerify your life and mine. I can. Um, so he's w- quoting a single solitary verse. I can do all things who, through Christ who strengthens me and has built an entire swagger theology around this one verse, apparently. You have your Bible. Let's flip on over to Philippians and uh, let's uh, take a look at what's going on there in Philippians, and let's read it in con- in context to see if this is truly teaching that important doctrine, the one that's been missing through all of Christian history, the the um, the uh, the the one that Satan has secretly destroyed in all of us, and that is swagger and confidence. It's unbelievable. And to tell you what we'll do, we'll point, we'll start since uh, the, our three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. And he's pointing us to a verse that's really toward the tail end, the very endish of uh, the book of Philippians. And quoting it out of context, why don't we just put it back in context? We'll spend a little bit of time reading. And if you have your Bible, so open up to Philippians chapter three, verse two. I want to take a swig of my coffee. All right, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Hmm. Paul is talking about confidence, and and the, the context in which Paul is talking about confidence is a confidence in our own good works, a confidence in our own righteousness, a confidence in our own abilities, a confidence that we can somehow achieve a right standing before God by performing good works. For we are the circumcision who, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence— in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the he of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of, of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever again, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, his good works, as rubbish. Um, yeah, the um, 
Greek word there is skubalon, skubalon, and that that basically means, um, uh, well, excrement. That's the right way of looking at it. Anyway, um, so he he considers all of that to be um, excrement, to be rubbish. Um, uh, But I want to be found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think you're, think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross." Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach, their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. Yeah, he's warning us about guys like Ed Young who have their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Daya, and I entreat Synthi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. I, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now I'm going to stop right here. So the verse, I, I can do all things through him, that's Jesus who strengthens me, let's put it back in its immediate context now that we've read the full context. Notice in chapter 3 it's all about Christ, a recital of the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, along with a complete teaching or a teaching that clearly uh, makes it unmistakable that we don't have a righteousness of our own and our good works are, well, they're rubbish. And that we are, our confidence is to not be in our good works or even in ourselves, but in what Christ has done for us. And his righteousness is imputed to us, according to Philippians chapter 3. And therefore, moving into the, into Philippians chapter 4, knowing all of this, we can rejoice in the Lord and rejoice even, even in our sufferings and our hardships. And um, that's what Paul says. He says, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need or have learned in what I have learned in whatever situation I am in, I've learned to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this, uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me has to do with the fact that life has its ups and downs. You can be in abundance or you can be in need, but it's Christ who gives you strength to see you through all of it because he's the one who's bought us. He's the one who's purchased us. He's the one who's died on the cross for our sins. And it's his righteousness that is given to us as if it's our own and our good works count for nothing. All of this is part of the thinking that's going on in Philippians chapter 4 because when you read it in context, all of this stuff comes to bear on that. But because Ed Young has read this out of out of context and is trying to teach some weird new doctrine about Godfidence um, and the and and having uh, recovering our lost swagger that Satan has hijacked, um, we're not getting a solid biblical teaching. In fact, we're not getting anything that's really even true. This is some kind of a pep talk, and even as pep talks go, this is convoluted. And it doesn't make a bunch of sense at all. It makes very little sense. can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Everyone here can download that verse. We can understand that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me break it down into four parts. The first one, I can. Turn to your neighbor and say, I can. I can. You know what that is? That's posture. That's posture. I can. In Christ... I'm not talking about yourself. In Christ, I can. I want to hang around with canners, not I can't errs. I can't make my the power of positive thinking. This sounds like a, a Norman Vincent Peale's theology run amok. Marriage work. I can't take control of my family. I can't deal with this habit. Really, just say the real deal, as I said earlier, I won't. In Christ, though, you can. What kind of posture do you have? We should walk with the gate of God. Okay, you got any verses that talk about walking with the gate of God? You got, got any of those? The first part of four, I can posture the gate of God. How are you walking? What's your vibe? What's your flow? How are you presenting yourself to the world? When people see you, they go, whoa, that girl, that dude, they got some God for us. They got something that I want. What are you talking about? I mean, this is just insanity. 
And this is a guy who's teaching other pastors how to be just like him. I'm just saying. The second part, you can clap. Be good. Somebody's clap. What are they clapping about exactly? I mean, what's the big revelation that's been revealed in, in this convoluted talk? Good place to clap. I can't do all things. Say do all things. Do all things. It's the second part. Potential. Potential. What's potential? It's the gift of God. God has given us this track. God has promised us that he's going to deliver us. He's not promised us a pain-free life. If you don't believe me, just think about the cross. One of the pro- yeah, why don't you spend a little bit more time? What was that cross about again? Can you give me a clear teaching regarding that? Parts of walking with God is suffering. And when you say that, you're not going to sell a bunch of books. You're not going to be invited to speak at a bunch of conferences. But let's take the gloves off and get serious. We are going to face difficulties in this life. Why? Because our world is not perfect. We're not perfect. The world is not perfect. We live in a fallen place. We're going to face mountains. We're going to face hills. We're going to face troubles. That's why we have got to rely on God to take us up the mountain and down the mountain, up the mountain and down the mountain. Your posture, your potential, the gift of God. So you got the gate of God and the... So my potential is the gift of God. You got any passages that say that again? Gift of God. I can do all things through Christ. Say through Christ. It's the third thing. Through Christ. That's right. Through Christ. That's my position. That's in the grip of God. I remember when I was, wow, in my 30s, our kids were younger. We would cross a busy street. I would hold the twins by the hands, and I could tell they would want to let go of my hands, but they couldn't. My hands, their father's hands were stronger and are stronger than the twins' hands. I was not going to let them go, even though they tried to release their grasp. Once we become a follower of Christ, we're in. We can't get out. Eternal confidence, eternal security, we're in. We're in. And that's the grip of God. Isn't it cool that we're all a part of the family of God? You hear the term, okay, born again. What does that mean, born again? A lot of people don't know what born again means. Okay, what's it mean? We all have birthdays. I just turned 50. Yay. I think it's great. I'm 50, right? 50. Chronologically, yeah. Mentally? Hmm. 50 years old. I love being 50. March 16th, 1961. That's my physical birthday. After I was a couple years old, my mother read me that story, right? The little engine that could. And I think I like it so much because it's about confidence and swagger. Anyway, I celebrated my birthday several days ago. That was fun. I also have a spiritual birthday. I was not born into the family of God naturally. I was born alienated, separated from God. Go into the details. Really? Uh, okay. So you were alienated and separated from God. That's correct. Can you give us some specifics about that? Why would that be? I have a synetic problem passed down from me. Because- What's synetic mean? You're making words up now and it's distracting. 
because man is a natural born sinner. So am I. And what's a sin? Can you give us some details? Put some meat on this bone here. Okay, I'm separate from God. One day, though, I asked Jesus Christ to to come into my life. I accepted what he did on the cross for my sins. I realized... What did he do on the cross for your sins? And how do you accept it? Um, Explain that. The only way I can get to God is through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wasn't saying... Yes, he did say that. I'm an option. He wasn't saying I'm one of many ways. He wasn't saying there's a bunch of different paths to get to one source. No, no, no. It's the exclusivity of Christ. Listen to me very, very carefully. Yeah, what, is, what is he exclusive about? What, 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 what do you mean by that? Just because you mention these words doesn't mean that a non-believer is going to understand anything of what you're saying. Truth is exclusive. Let me say it again. Truth is is exclusive. It's exclusive. The law of gravity is exclusive. Yay. Okay, great. That's fine and dandy, but who cares? It's not like, well, there, there are different types of the law. No, no, no. There's a law of gravity. That's truth. You either believe it, receive it, or not, but it's in effect. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except by me. I'm it, Jesus said. All right. You either like it, you don't like it, you, you, you question it, you circle the airport over and over, never land the plane, or you say, you know what, Jesus, I have questions, but I'm going to trust you. You're God, I'm not. Trust him for what? You're the way. Once you make, The way to where? Make that decision. Once I did, the Bible says we're born into the family of God. We're born what? Again, that's what it means. Born again, born again. I'm born physically. Now I'm born spiritually into the family of God. And once I'm born into the family of God, born again, the father grips me. He grips my hand and I can't get out. I can't get out. So God is like the Hotel California. Got it. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Okay. This is kind of creepy. That's the the confidence that we have. So, so I should live... Uh, a swagger-driven life just because of that. Man, my man, my security is sealed. But we got people walking around like that. What are you secured from again? Because they like to sing or rap, play sports or act or do whatever. And, and Christians are walking around like this. What? And then those who are Christians... Want to be prideful in their humility. I, I don't even know what you're talking about, but okay. Let's all throw up together. Ugh. Come on now. It's all about God. It's about Godfidence. We got to have it. I'm not talking about arrogance. I still have no idea what Godfidence is. What Godfidence for what? Arrogance. Arrogance is I'm the man. Godfidence is no, no. I'm God's man. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can tap into Christ's strength. We're part of his family. That's power. The grid of God. A power grid. The grid of God. Whoa. So confidence to tap into the power grid of God. So God is a big electrical uh, grid. Okay. Oh. So when I'm facing 
this situation in my marriage with my kids in this, in this jacked up career, as I'm facing this situation on the court, on the field, in the classroom, as I'm facing this situation with the friend who betrayed me by God's strength and power, by his grid, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. You're going to have some doubts. I got doubts. Doubt your doubts. Feed your faith, not your fear. Without doubt, there's no faith. With no faith, there's certainty. What is faith? Comp- yeah, um, exa- again, how is it relevant preaching when you can't even understand what on earth the pastor is talking about? Confidence in God. You're going to have doubts. That's cool. What are you feeding? What are you feeding? I think I can't. I think I can and God will take you to the top. You'll conquer it. You'll go through it. It might not be easy. Many will still bear the scars of it. There'll still be lost loved ones. There'll still be relational wreckage in certain situations. Well, there's sermon wreckage going on right here. I I really have no idea what on earth you're trying to get at. But by his grace, we'll look back and as we go down the hill. I thought I could. 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 And every t- isn't the idea if you're going to be, you know, preaching to a non-Christian audience. I mean, that not that one of the major ideas behind the seeker-driven, purpose-driven methodologies that uh, that you know Ed Young Jr. is one of the major proponents of is that you know you're 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 preaching you know life tips and principles and and you know for felt needs so that the uh, the non-believer who shows up at your congregation and attends a church service which isn't for Christians but is for them the non-believer that uh, at the end of it you know things have been made easier for them not more difficult that things that, that, that this is something that's practical for their lives uh, but how is it practical if you can't even understand what on earth the pastor is talking about how does this new vernacular that um that Ed Young Jr has come up with you know the godfidence thing and and swagger jacker and and all this weird uh, these weird phrases that he's come up with throughout the sermon how does this make christianity easier to understand for the non-believer as opposed to making it completely inaccessible to anybody i mean i don't think this has made christianity simpler at all I, in fact it 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 it's not really even a clear exposition of what Christianity is or what the Bible really teaches. And even when he touches on cross, the cross and salvation stuff like that, he thinks he's explaining it, but he's not. He really truly isn't. We're not being brought a simple, clear message of repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. We're not told what a sin really is. It's kind of assumed in in the way he's preaching and teaching it. Uh, We're not really told what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and in fact, it's kind of recontextualized so that that even Jesus is going to the cross is retold in such a way as to fit the the, the daily... um, well, the the need of the day that he thinks he's preaching about that 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 bane to society and the and the thing that the uh, the seeker, the so-called religious seeker, apparently is suffering from, and that is a lack of confidence and having their swagger jacked. Um, I, I just find that all of this stuff to be obnoxious, 
and a distraction. And I don't think that this is relevant at all. I think this is completely irrelevant and irreverent in such a way that uh, God isn't glorified. Sound biblical doctrine isn't being preached. And I don't think that we can make the case here that the lost are being reached for Christ. Uh, If anything, uh, this is just utter nonsense. Time. Every time we take a hill, what's happening? We're building some serious spirit-led swagger. That's why I read the Bible. In the past, it tells me all the mountains that, 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 that these people conquered. That's why I talk to other people who are swagasauruses. And I can... Swagasauruses. Maybe those are actually extinct for a reason. Talk to these dinosaurs and look back in the past. Thank you. And see how... One guy just got that. Oh, you go, Swagasaurus, I get it. Talk to these Swagasaurus Rex. Talk to these. This series has its own vocabulary. Yeah, no, I, I get that it has its own vocabulary. And the, the vocabulary is actually not truly biblical. And it, I mean, it doesn't make Christianity easier to understand or more relevant. It just makes it stupid. See, we're not, we're not going to let the enemy steal confidence and swagger from us. When we talk about confidence and swagger, it should be those of us who are in Christ, Godfidence. Anyway, talk to these dinosaurs who've lived a long, long time like I have. I'll tell you time and time again how a lot of people said, Ed, Ed, you can't. You can't. You can't. You can't start a church in Dallas-Fort Worth. You can't buy... Now he's preaching about himself. He's telling his story again. 160 acres in the middle of the Metroplex. You can't start a campus in downtown Dallas, downtown Fort Worth, Plano, or Miami. You don't got the money, man. You can't... Apparently, uh, yeah, that's not the uh, bit, the big problem. Uh, the big problem is, is that now that you've built this multi-million dollar facility and have your private jet and uh, the big 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 lake house and and the um and the um vacation home in Miami um yeah um the message that's being taught at this state of the art multi million dollar facility doesn't even amount to anything that's even mentally let alone biblically coherent the ed young show is is kind of like watching somebody with um well, narcissistic vocabulary Tourette's, you know, just, you know, all of a sudden blurting out uh, words that uh, don't make any sense, but he thinks are relevant and important. And they're not. Can't, you can't go on TV. This church cannot reach people all over the world. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Let me stop. Really, there were that, there were a whole bunch of people saying, no, you can't reach people around the world. And see again the problem is is not that you want to reach people around the world. The problem is is that now that you're reaching people around the world through your television ministry, the message you're reaching them with is complete and utter nonsense. In Christ? Oh yeah. I think I can. I think I can. Have I been certain? Have I been certain? In the decisions that I've made as pastor of Fellowship Church for 20 years? No. I've never been certain. I've always had uncertainty. 
I've always had doubts. Always had questions. Always, 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 always. Do people go to hell for such problems? I, you know. Even when you got married, you had them. Don't raise your hand. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I So we're, we're getting the little engine that could. I mean, I don't need a crucified and risen Savior for the little engine that could. In fact, if I remember correctly, um, when I read that story to my children when they were knee-high to a grasshopper, um, I don't ever remember the uh, the little engine that could ever mentioning Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins, pointing us to our great God and Savior, who was God in human flesh, lived a perfectly righteous life, died because of our sin and rebellion against God. And you want to know what a sin is, you read the, the, read the Ten Commandments, and you realize, yikes, I have sinned against a holy and just God. And the thing we're being saved from, by the way, is not our lack of confidence, but the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. On that day, there will be no more repentance offered. There will be no pardon and forgiveness offered to sinful humanity. It'll be too late. So, I mean, you can, you know, it's, you know, it's possible for somebody to read the Bible and go through life with all kinds of confidence that they can overcome all kinds of problems, obstacles, and those thorny hills and valleys of the everyday living, and yet never have brought, been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins so that they trust in Christ for that full and complete pardon that propitiates the wrath of God. And so you can live with confidence all you want, but um, you may end up in hell. In fact, I, I know a lot of non-believers who have all kinds of confidence and swagger, and they think they can, and they sure enough, they pull it off. And when they climb over the mountain, they go, I thought I could. I knew I could. Um, but that's not what saves you, and that's not what propitiates the wrath of God. When when the final day comes and the books are open, God's not going to sit there and go, all right, let's take a look at how you handled the mountains in your life. And did you have the uh, I think I can, I think I can mentality? Because if you didn't have the think I can, I think I can mentality, well, then, oh, <laughs> You weren't really truly living a Christian life that was pleasing to God. And so uh, you know, you ha you, the only way you can be saved is if you have the I think I can mentality. You see, this doesn't make any sense biblically. Not only that, when you understand what the, the historic Orthodox Christian faith has taught and believed from the beginning, and you've read sermons by men like Christostom you know, or, you know, or Augustine, and you read the letters written by the early church fathers, and you actually read the Bible, you know, the New Testament, you realize that none of this actually makes sense biblically. In fact, the things that he's preaching about in many ways are preached against in the scriptures as well as in the, as in the writings of those Christians who have gone before us. This is just a distraction away from the message that we're called to preach and proclaim. Ed Young is looking like he's a friend of that ever-so-elusive creature known as the spiritual seeker, you know, giving them something in a relevant way that will mean mean something to them. But the thing is, is that this doesn't mean anybody anything to anybody because it doesn't make any coherent sense. I, 
can, I thought I could, 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 I thought I could. Now hear me again. Let me retract. You know what I'm saying. I think I can. I'm not not talking about me. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about believers in Christ and Christ in us. Every time I speak, people go, oh, yeah, but you said I think I can. No, 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 no. Come on, man. Understand the context. The Apostle Paul, the context, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, was a difficult one. Yet Paul wrote this verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a maximum strength verse, isn't it? Sometimes when I go to the drugstore and pick up a prescription, I'll peruse the... A a maximum strength verse. Apparently the verse is like a pill that's going to solve your problems. Okay. The aisles and look at all the remedies and pills and formulas. Everything these days is maximum strength. Got a headache? Maximum strength. Backache? Maximum strength. Oily skin? Maximum strength. Hemorrhoids? No, I'm sorry, but... I can't believe I said that. But I'm 50 years old. I can say things like that. Now, I can do crazy stuff because I'm, you know, kind of midlife, a little bit crazy. So, everything is maximum strength. This text is what? Maximum strength. You're not preaching on a biblical text, sir. You're preaching on an out-of-context verse. We're not talking about little aches and pains of life. We're talking about the real deal, the loss of a loved one. Questions. That, that, that beg to be answered. Issues in the most important relationships out there. So, hey, <laughs> you know this verse. It's not Filipino 4.13. It's Philippians 4.13. Does anyone find that just to be grossly offensive? I... It's a promise of God. See this lectern right here? It's a pretty cool lectern, high-tech. Someone built it for us. I don't know who, but whoever did, they did a great job. There are three legs on it. Here's the Bible. The Bible is what? The promise of God. Today, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The first leg, the knowledge of God. You can- yeah, but um, yeah, so you're pointing to your three-legged uh, lectern there. Uh, here's the problem, Ed. Uh, the first leg is the knowledge of God. But you're not really teaching us what the Bible says. You're not doing any exegetical work in the scriptures as at all. As a result of it, what knowledge you claim that we're, you're giving people, um, your, your, your three-legged stool has fallen over because you're not really teaching us the knowledge of God because the knowledge of God is found in the scriptures, which are to be read in their entirety in context. You cannot plead ignorance. You can't say, well, I just don't know the Bible, man. Yeah, that's because my pastor never actually teaches it. No, you know it. You know, really, how do they know it? Where, where are they supposed to learn it? They're not going to hear it from you. Are they supposed to get it in that small group studies, you know, in, in a small group life group where people sit around and pool their ignorance together? Well, what does this verse mean to you? Where are they supposed to learn the Bible, huh? Who's going to teach them? Know it. You got the knowledge. You understand it. So you're accountable by God because you know this. Again, how can you make the claim that they know it when you don't actually teach it? The second leg, faith. Faith. Faith in what? In whom? 
What is faith? Confidence in God. For what? Confidence in God for what? You can have questions. You can have doubts. You move out. You move up the track, up the mountain, because God will see you through. The first leg is what? Knowledge. The second leg is what? Faith. The third leg is? It's a secret here to the Christian life. Obedience. Obedience. I don't understand it. I don't understand every little nuance, but God, I'm going to keep on going down the track you have for my life. You have an abundant life for me. There's going to be mountains. I think I can. Yo, ho, yo, ho, an abundant life for me. I think I can. I've got confidence. I think I can. I think I can. God, I want to quit. God, it's too hard to build this church. God, it costs too much money to buy this land. All these campuses, I, I, I want to quit. I'm it costs too much to, to fuel my private jet. I mean, you know how expensive jet fuel is? Tired. I want to retire. I think I... Yeah, I, I want to retire to my private condominium right there on the ocean in Miami. I can, I think I can, this marriage is too difficult, these kids are driving me crazy, this habit is messing me around. I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. Knowledge, faith, and obedience, Godfidence. do you have it? Yeah, I, I probably don't, I... I'm, I might not experience the abundant life. It's, it's true. My life may not be abundant enough as a result of the fact that until now I haven't even realized that I needed it, but I, I don't have confidence. Do you have it? I, how do you get confidence? Apparently, the man who knows the secret to confidence is um, Ed Young Jr. I'm glad, church, that we're a church full of I canners. I'm glad, church, that we're a church that says, you know what? I'm going God's way. I'm going to walk with swagger that comes from him. And I'm not going to allow the enemy to hijack my confidence. I'm going to be, you know. Yeah, what an example of godly godfidence. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. The fruit of the spirit is swagger, godfidence. Um, I, I canner-ism and um, yeah. Hmm. I can, I can, I can, I can, I can, because he can. Uh, cue sappy music. Uh, apparently that's an applause line. I don't know why people are applauding, because um, nothing he's actually preached makes any biblical, let alone, you know, just basic thought kind of coherent sense let's pray together new no, we're done so you know I, I i just asked a question um how is this relevant how how does this make christianity more understandable how does this help somebody who has questions about christianity as to what christianity is really all about I mean, isn't the whole idea behind the seeker-driven, purpose-driven uh, church methodology is, is that this is a form of evangelism? That the church service isn't for the Christian anymore, it's for the seeker. So that we can 
demonstrate to them how much we love and care for them so that they'll make a decision for Jesus. But at the end of the day, what exactly did the non-believer learn from this service? What did the Christian learn from this service? I mean, the truth be told, um, I've taken notes on it, and I don't think it's worth the paper that I wrote it on. These notes are useless. This sermon was completely useless. There's nothing here. There's no power here for life change or anything other, any other kind of change. In fact, anybody who's attending this church might want to just consider changing churches because this is just obnoxious. This is just incoherent. This isn't biblical. This isn't what it means to be a creative pastor cre- with an emphasis on the creativity. Yeah, we got our own language here that... Uh, Ed Young has come up with, but his language isn't true to the scriptures. He's just making stuff up, and I, and this is just such a distraction. And somebody will say, well, don't you understand that a hundred people raised their hands during the, the prayer at the end of the sermon so that they could receive their swagger back from God? See, that proves that the Holy Spirit is working. No, it just means, it just proves, like uh, P.T. Barna said, that there's a fool born every minute. And yet, Ed Young, Ed Young Jr. is one of the premier seeker-driven, purpose-driven preachers who flies all across the country in his private jet to teach other pastors how to do this. How to go from being a sound, biblical, exegetical expositor of God's word who proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins from every page of scripture to being a narcissistic jerk who makes the Bible completely ununderstandable, who tells Christians that they're selfish for wanting to come to, to church to hear the Bible and be taught what it says. All the while, he's you know got a huge lake, a house on a lake, condo in Miami, and this doesn't make Christianity better. It just makes it worse. This is what's wrong with the church. Ed Young Jr. is typifying the problem. He is not the solution. He is the problem. He's a big part of the problem. And it's time for Christians to say, enough. This isn't Christianity. This isn't evangelism. This isn't even sanctification or sound biblical teaching. This is just narcissistic inanity. Maybe I should start making up words myself. What gets lost in all of this? Clear and coherent and understandable exposition of God's word that points us to Christ and him crucified for your sins and for mine. This doesn't fulfill the great commission of going and making disciples. This is like this is the this is the anti great commission type of sermon. This is the kind of a sermon that at the end of it a Christian disciple is left scratching their head going what just happened? 
and they're made stupider as a result of it. They're made more biblically illiterate rather than biblically literate. They don't. They aren't growing in sound biblical doctrine. They're actually slipping backwards into obscurity and ununderstandable, messy mysticism. Who knows? I mean, there are people out there who are attacking the Christian church and are replacing sound biblical doctrine with the with the the mythology of Darwinism, and they're doing it within the visible church. And do you think that the members of Fellowship Church are going to be able to mount an effective resistance against the false doctrine that's running through the church? Do you think that somebody who's been taught by Ed Young is capable of standing up against the false doctrine of Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, Carl Guyverson, Michael Dowd, Rob Bell? No, not at all. In fact, if this is what they're getting Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they're not capable of rubbing two verses together and getting some kind of a divine spark of a doctrine that they can even hang their hat on. Pray that Christ brings Ed Young Jr. to repentance. And pray that these mega churches collapse and go away, by you know, that they become the dinosaurs that are extinct, because this isn't advancing the cause of Christ at all. It is actually taking us in the opposite direction. I think Satan's kingdom is being strengthened as opposed to the kingdom of God being strengthened and proclaimed as a result of these types of sermons. Anyway, all right, so we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio, and we truly do need your financial support in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world and to challenge the things that are being that are taking place in in the visible church, in the name of evangelism and advancing Christianity, and it's not. So if you don't already partner with us, we need you to visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, there's two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.